my best friend, Jen, and she is giggling. (laughs) (laughs) And this is my best friend, Kelly, and she has a lot of crafts. And we're therapists. (laughs) Oh, you missed it. And we're therapists. That's us. And we have two um, co-workers who might be here with us making their debut. Mm, They have the tippy taps and the panty pants. Yep. And the arrows. So. That's two. All right. Episode five. Halfway through our podcast journey of season one of ten episodes. I can't even believe it. It has been great so far. Yes. You seem like you were asking that question. I, I was actually th- like thinking just like, yeah, no, it has been good and it has felt, I don't know, fun and exciting and better than expected. Yeah, that's great. So we thought that today we would talk about the topic of self-reflection because I was in editing processes and hearing our voices for hours at a time and it just made me think about you know, most people hate the sound of their own voice, but it was making me think about how people can be overly critical of themselves and your own perception of yourself versus other people's perceptions of yourself. And so this whole idea of like, let's talk about self-reflection. Plus, as we've talked about before, we're coming up on our 10 years of, you know, experience since grad school. And so I think that's a time for professional self-reflection as well. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about self-reflection today. So yeah. Jen, when you hear self-reflection, what comes up for you? I think, oh, I don't like that. Well, okay. I think of self-reflection in two very distinct categories, like one being of my professional self, which as a therapist, we're always in this place of like learning and growing and having like an understanding that that's what we're doing, not just what we're doing for other people. Um, And I think we're used to engaging in some form of feedback loop with a supervisor or a peer or whatever. So that kind of self-reflection I love, I am grateful for, even when it's difficult, it's still good. Um, personal self-reflection, no, no, I'm, I don't care for that at all. <laughs> what do you think is the difference? Like, why is per- professional self-reflection easier to do? Because it's a very concrete role, mm. right? It's like, I know when I go to work, like, I'm, honestly, with most people who go to work, like, we're being evaluated in some way. Like, most people have a yearly evaluation or something like that. Um, but then also being a therapist, we like a credentialing process of like, right, you learn information and then you go through a process where you're getting consultation or something like that about how you're implementing your skills. Um, most therapists have had some experience, either audio recording or video recording themselves for feedback about, you know, different evidence-based um, practices that they're using. So all of that to me is like, okay, like I understand that as a part of my job, so when, but for me and in, in my personal life, I, I lean way into the like anxiety reaction of that. Do you think that, so what you're talking about with the professional side is because there's also a specific criteria that you're supposed to be meeting? Like, oh yeah, I love that. Yeah. Kind of like a, it made me think of like when you're writing a paper and you have a rubric that mm-hmm. is like 10 points is worth for these topics of the paper or whatever. And so it feels kind of the same for a professional setting. Like you have to be able to meet these 13 objectives to show that you're competent in this area. And so it's much more concrete and specific. Yes. Which then if you're doing your own self-reflection, 
like if you really are doing personal self-reflection, it's not like I'm like, okay, here is a checklist for myself. How can I check off that I'm a good person or that I'm a kind person? And I mean, I would imagine you listening to, since you're doing all the editing for the podcast, like I would imagine you listening to that is what is the sound quality like? Are we really conveying the things that we're outlining and things like that? Yeah. That it feels more specific of things that you're looking for. Yeah. Like, I think that's a very specific way to be reflecting on something. But usually when, when I have done organic self-reflection, it's because it's one in the morning and I can't sleep. And I'm thinking about that thing I said in eighth grade, which is not actually self-reflection. And I do know that, but like, that's where my mind goes when I think of it. So what, what's the flip side of that? Or not even the flip side, but what is your experience with it? Interesting. I think that my experience of self-reflection is more random like moments of insight that I have that can be triggered by I don't think that I do a ton of like let me just sit down and have a like stream of consciousness kind of reflection yeah it'll usually be like I'm listening to something or having a conversation with a person or see something on tv and I'll notice like a reaction to something whether it's in my body or just a thought and then I'll reflect on that so I think for me it's interesting because part of it I'm having a hard time because there's a question that I feel like I want to address before answering that question which is like how do you do self-reflection yeah and you know with clients we offer ideas like doing journaling or meditating or um having conversation like therapy is self-reflection that kind of thing and for me it feels much more um like random and not necessarily intentional, which to me feels a little bit like imposter syndrome kind of stuff. It's like we're encouraging people to do this like intentional self-reflection. And then for me, it's like, I'll be walking my dogs and have a random thought pop into my head. And it's not like I'm sitting down ready to write in my journal and discuss it. I usually do take notes in my phone. Like I've told you before, here's all my random (laughs) thoughts that are in my phone that don't make any sense together, but they, you know, are in here. Yeah, I think you're making a good good point because I think that is more probably my own or more similar to my own process of noticing something, like having a a symptom of awareness, a sign of awareness, having some kind of awareness. um, A signal of awareness. Yes, like having a piece of awareness just kind of happen for yourself and you're like, oh, wow, okay, either... Like if I'm reading a book or listening to another podcast and someone says something that really resonates, I'm like, oh, either that's speaking to my experience in a way that I hadn't put words to it before. Or I'm like, oh, I think I, I think I need that. Like, I think what they just said, that might apply to me as something that I need or a way to meet a need. So it stops it from being so ambiguous because I think that can feel very ambiguous in general. Self-reflection can. Right. It seems to open and non-directional at times which is often why I tell patients who are interested in journaling to really start with journal prompts because sitting down to journal can actually feel pretty overwhelming and journaling can be something that can be very helpful from a preventative standpoint but I think can be difficult a lot of times if you're trying to implement it as a coping skill Mm -hmm. because sometimes I think writing down our feelings in the moment it can feel 
like you're kind of exercising those feelings out of you. But I think sometimes it can just reinforce some of those things. Yeah, that's interesting. It can turn it into kind of a spiral and just amplify them and rather than yeah, help the process. Yeah, like I think it can be cathartic, but sometimes it's not. So I always encourage people to start with prompts and then like use that as data for yourself of what's really working. And that might give you some direction of where to go. That's an interesting distinction, though, the, dif- the difference of self-reflection as a coping skill, like I'm in distress and need to reflect about the distress that I am having versus I am having a reaction to something. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a distressing reaction, but it could just be like a little like, oh, like the light bulb thing in your head or oh yeah, you know, just a little pinch or something that notices. Which that makes me think of crying because of just... Say more about my favorite topic. <laughs> just that idea of like, just because you're having a reaction doesn't mean it's distressing. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I think that that's a really powerful thing to say because oftentimes people feel like they have to apologize for crying or that something is wrong with crying when it's like, that's just one way that you are experiencing an emotional reaction. And mm-hmm. one, we don't have to put judgment on that, um, but we, we could, and that may tell us more information. So, yeah. Hmm. I like that thought. Yes. Yeah, so my stomach is growling really loud. Right now. No, I cannot hear it. But... <laughs> I can hear it inside my own head <laughs> because of my headphones and self-reflection. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that you are right, though. Like you could you could use self-reflection in a ways of a coping skill, right? To maybe do some reality checking of, OK, this is the story that I'm telling myself about this experience that I just had or a conversation or a situation that came up. Is this story actually factional, factual, <laughs> um, rational, right? And doing some of that reality checking. I also think that it is a way to... Um externalize things for yourself a little bit in the sense of, you know, like we are both trained in EMDR. And one of the things that they talk about is like picture that situation on a TV or you're sitting on a train and it's passing by and all of that kind of thing. So self-reflection, if you do it in a healthy way, can be like put yourself on the train and see the scene that you're having distress about as you're passing by it. Mm -hmm. And like, what do you observe and help to externalize to desensitize things a little bit? Oh yeah. Which Um, is a great meta step. Right. Right. Like pull yourself out of it do a top down kind of approach to that. Um, as if you were looking at it from that way, because that may give you more clarity and give you more objectivity. Yeah. But yeah, I was talking to, um, clients about the intensity of reactions that you have and like that spiral piece. And so whenever they are making connections between like this thing feels like this other thing. And so it has to mean this, this, and this, and what we know about trauma and neural networks and how our experiences build on each other and are connected to each other. That's another episode we can talk about for some education around those things. But when you have a trigger, it feels like another experience Mm -hmm. and the intensity of the other experience might be a 10 when the situation that you're in might only be a three and you are reacting to a three, like it's a 10. And then it causes all these problems with your relationships or with your safety and all of that kind of stuff. And so I talk with clients around like taking a beat and trying to have that conversation with yourself of if somebody else was telling you about this, what would you rate this event as? And if they're like, well, I don't know, more like a three. And it's like, okay, so then what do you need to use coping skills wise to bring yourself from a 10 to a three? So you are reacting appropriately with the level of distress for the situation. God, yeah, that's brilliant. That's great feedback about that. Well, cause we are, 
no surprise, I'm sure, for all the other humans out there, but like we are completely informed by our past experiences. And I'm like EMDR really explains it this way, but I really love to use this in talking with clients of like, okay, so if your brain is just one giant filing cabinet, like we like to file things that look the same or feel the same together. And sometimes we do that. And that's actually not really the way we should file it, which exactly it's exactly what you're saying, right? We take threes and we're putting them with tens because there's something similar about that. Mm -hmm. But then that ends up kind of biting ourselves in the ass later on. Yeah. And I think the thing that's also difficult about that though, and putting that into practice is it does require require some training and repetition Mm -hmm. because when you're at a 10, that thinking part of your brain doesn't work as well as when you're at a three. So you really have to do some body body coping seal stuff to bring yourself down a little bit. And so when giving feedback to people about that, they're like, huh, yeah, great idea, Kelly. Like, how do I do that? And so that's part of it. It reminds me of when people, um, I'm sure you've had this experience when you're like, okay, I want to talk to you about deep breathing. And they're like, do not fucking talk to me about <laughs> deep breathing. But most people don't like it because they don't do it correctly. Yeah. Um, as far as like filling your diaphragm and helping that press on your vagus nerve and that you know, releases the happy chemicals in your brain. And I think whenever you can legitimize it scientifically to people, they have an easier time accepting that, but I'm getting way off topic with that. So, but yeah, self-reflection can be a tool to help you ask yourself, am I reacting at an appropriate or accurate level for things? Cause you want to make sure that you're validating yourself because your feelings are accurate. They just might be too intense. Yeah. Because they're informed by whatever cognitively is happening and our thoughts are very infamous for being liars. So yeah, while the feeling may be valid and real, it's informed by the thought and the thought may be a lie. So um, I'm sure we all do a lot of CBT stuff like other therapists and and kind of figuring out like what is the cycle of that, right? Because it goes thought, feeling, behavior. Um, but sometimes walking it backwards can be more helpful. Like, okay, what's the feeling? Let's walk it backwards. What was the cognition with that? Mm-hmm. Um I also think we as humans are really good about the hindsight thing, right? Like once we have all the pieces of the puzzle and we can look at what image it makes, we're like, oh, okay. Um, But then we can be kind of hard on ourselves as far as not offering ourselves compassion because we can reflect on like past experiences and be like, why did I do this? Or why didn't I know this? And it's like, well, it's a lot easier right now to have that kind of thought process because now you do have all of the information and hindsight can be really helpful, but insight is much more helpful than hindsight because then we can do something in the moment. That's interesting. That just gave me a little light bulb and self-reflection moment of like, is that why it's called insight is because it's happening in the moment? I have no idea. Huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot with people about hindsight versus insight and yeah, that makes insight feels more action based. Like it's yeah, like it's happening right now versus yeah, insight's reactive. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Thanks. I'm gonna have to reflect on that. Later. I'm so glad. Which I mean, really, the whole point of self reflection. I guess not the whole point, but one of the outcomes that we're looking for is an increase in self awareness. Because if I'm really aware of how I tend to behave in the moment, what things are triggers for me, how I interact in different social situations or settings right? We can use a million examples of the way awareness can be helpful, but then with awareness comes insight. And so then we have a lot more capacity or skills or resources, whatever in the moment to make changes rather than waiting for something else to happen. It reminds me of people like 
how sometimes won't be moved to make change until they're in crisis mm-hmm. because then everything feels so intense, right? Or like burnout. Like it's really easy to identify when you're burnt out, but it's it can be really difficult to identify it when it's coming, like burning. when you're leading up to it, yeah. right? And that's all that kind of hindsight stuff is like, yeah, when we have all the information, it's easy then to make decisions. So I'm having this moment where I'm feeling like, do I even know what insight is? And now this imposter syndrome stuff is coming up and all of that. But like, what, how would you differentiate between self-awareness and insight? Like, what's the difference between those two things? Ooh. Um, Well, I think self-awareness is specific to self, but I think insight could be related to lots of things. Like I could have some awareness, some self-awareness right now, about how I am interacting with you, making this recording and all of this stuff. But I think insight is more about everything else that could potentially be happening right now in the moment, like you and me and the setting and all of those other things. That's how I mean, I perceive it. I'm not saying that's the correct way. Yeah. So self-awareness might be more of the like mindfulness component of things and being aware of how like the tone of my voice or the volume of my voice or you know whatever and then insight might be or the, oh but see here yeah, I have awareness but it's Lexi crying at the door but um having insight might be more along the lines of like what does my voice make me think about myself mm-hmm. rather than just noticing that it sounds a certain way yeah that's interesting well I think insight a lot of times is we have like these little nuggets of it where we're like, where you have something happen or you're experiencing something. You're like, God, what is that? Like something's welling up for me. What is that? Or, you know, this experience just happened to me and it made me upset. And I'm kind of not sure why, like insights, the answer to that, right? Like when we can make the connection, that's being insightful. So how do we help people apply insight into action? Mm. Cause I think that's one of the hardest things about being a therapist and where I get stuck a lot with people is like, so say that, especially with depression, I think that depression is really hard because it's a tough one. so many of the things that we advise people to do to help deal with their impre- depression are the things that their symptoms prevent them from doing, mm-hmm. right? So like moving your body by taking a walk and being outside and breathing fresh air, like that would really help your depression. However, how can I do that if I can't get out of bed? And so I feel like how helping people to apply the stuff that they talk about and to apply the insights that they develop feels really hard to give them any guidance on that because my instinct is to be like, just do it. And that doesn't feel very helpful or explanatory. So, yeah, I always try to encourage patients to like, like if I'm seeing someone once a week, okay, over the next week, let's really make our best effort to attempt to do this. And then when I see them the next week, if for whatever reason that doesn't happen, then sometimes like a lot of times we'll have data about why not. Right. Like what were the barriers? Yes. So I think for me, I always try to connect to like, okay, let's try to do this. And then either it happens and then we can talk about what that experience was like, right? What was good? What was bad? X, Y, Z. Or if it didn't, or maybe three days out of seven, I was really successful in these other four days. I, I wasn't. Um, I always talk to patients about let's gather some data because that can be really helpful for us and in, in informing what's going on for us, informing our self-awareness and things like that. Yeah. So I'm having some mo- more moments of self-reflection and thinking about how I think that's something that 
has always been hard for me as a therapist. And I really try to monitor is like feeling responsible for your client's progress Mm -hmm. and knowing that like you can give them the tools, but you can't make them use them. And so noticing that I get um, kind of impatient around like, well, why, why haven't you done this yet? Or like, what's the barrier or whatever. And then that feels like, well, that's because I'm not doing a good enough job as the therapist to help them move into that. And so then I think that when I notice that I'm doing that, why are you smiling? I just, <laughs> I just, anytime um, so a helper says stuff like that, I'm always like, that is so cute that you think you have that much power. I know, yeah, it's annoying. <laughs> Which is so, it's also annoying because that's the feedback that we give our clients too. It's like, you can't make people do things. You can't control them. You can't do this. You can't do that. And it's just, yeah, like that's, that's actually not your responsibility as a practitioner. Right. Yeah. I remember my first job at um, the treatment facility and feeling like, gosh, you know, the people that I was working with were doing so well while they were like living inpatient with us. And then feeling like I must not have done my job whenever they would go home and have recurrence of use mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And that was something that I had to really get over pretty quickly or not get over, deal with pretty quickly or else that burnout would have been really strong, really fast. But I still get that sometimes. I also think that I feel like that a lot when I feel stuck with clients, right? When it's like, okay, I don't have anything new to say today. And especially if they're not coming prepared to talk about something. And so that tension of like, are you working harder than the client is? And I do think that in private practice, that feels a little different than in agency work when that happens, but trying to like remind myself that if I'm feeling compelled to say something to fill space, that's usually when I need to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And so having that self-awareness of your feeling compelled to say something is paired with the insight of because that means you need to be quiet. So that just helped me work through self-awareness versus insight. Um, I will say, I guess this is a little bit of a correction about like, I do think as a practitioner, when someone isn't making progress, we do need to reflect on what our role is in that, but also making sure that we're not trying to overcompensate for our patients like lack of progress. And that can be a difficult and sensitive line to kind of wander around. And I mean, that's why supervision is so good and getting another perspective on some of those things. Cause it can be like, wow, am I, is there a gap here that I'm not considering? Cause I'm missing something. And sometimes someone else can help us fill that. Or is it really patient oriented? And for whatever reason, right. They're stuck or behavior change isn't happening. And sometimes it's because of their own willingness. Sometimes it's because there's a secondary gain that could be going on. Right. All of these other reasons. Yeah. And also, Man, my having a brain lapse again. Something you said made me think a thought. <laughs> that was a silly thing to say. Something I love when said. I think thoughts. <laughs> made me think a thought. What else are you gonna do with the thought? That's silly. Um, but the, you were talking about is, am I missing something? Getting super oh progress. That's see, I gotta walk it back. <laughs> I gotta walk it back. Um, how are we measuring progress? And is progress to us? something different than what it is to our clients, right? So like, because to our our clients, even if they're not making progress, as far as like, I have stopped using substances, or I have um, implemented this strategy for coping, or my relationships are improving, or like the treatment plan kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. versus your client's opinion that they're making progress because they're coming and talking about something. 
I think there are a lot of instances where patients might feel like they're not making progress or they're not making significant enough progress. And it's really up to us to point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, this makes me think about when people are having maybe a depressive episode and they'll get really bogged down in, I really feel like I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing to manage my depression. I'm taking my meds. I'm coming to my sessions. I feel like I'm doing the work. I'm trying to meet my basic needs. Why am I having a depressive episode? And it's like, well, because you have depression and it's, yeah. a, it's a chronic disease. And sometimes we can do everything right. And we're still going to have an episode. But how long has it been since your last episode? Yeah. How long did this one last? What was the severity of it? Like, that's like, oh my gosh, that can be progress. You haven't had an episode in eight months. That's amazing. And people being like, oh. Yeah, it's so hard to convince people that like when they're in the shit, it's still progress. Oh yeah. Well, and I try to be very careful. And sometimes I preface this with my patients about like, I'm not trying to be like, put a positive spin on this. And I don't want you to view it as this, but I do want to recognize for you that this is an accomplishment that I feel like I'm observing. And I do think it's our job as practitioners to point out the things that are progress and are worth being excited about for our our patients. Yeah, it's so hard to whenever. This is another moment of self-awareness and reflection of trying to be aware of like, and do I seem like, because I get excited about small stuff, right? And, and I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, like that's such a big deal. Like you took a shower every day this week. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean it when I say that. And I think sometimes that, or I fear sometimes that my clients think that I'm just patronizing them or being like, good job, little buddy, you did it. When really I'm like, no, this is a big deal. And so just how much is too much and like how to convey excitement and encouragement without it feeling like you're just pretending to be a cheerleader. But then I guess also that's like, well, that's not my responsibility to make sure that they understand. Like I want to communicate as clearly as I can, but I can't make sure that they hear exactly what I mean. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine that, I mean, you are someone who very similar to me sees a lot of our patients for very long periods of time. So there is a lot of rapport and trust and comfort in the relationship. So I would be surprised if people would find you patronizing if they were, you know, not a brand new patient who maybe still are kind of feeling you out. Um, But yeah, I mean, we could also fall into a little bit of a trap of that, you know, being, having good intentions and sometimes our intention doesn't match the impact because that's also kind of part of being a human, but yeah. So I want to ask a question of both of us and maybe this will, we'll have to see if it's something that we feel comfortable answering, but (laughs) what is something that what do you think is the hardest thing for you to be reflective about with yourself personally so not just like any personal stuff but a specific topic or situation Mm. and if you don't want to answer it that's okay I don't mind answering it I don't know that I've really thought about this or maybe not even like I don't want to say the hardest because that there's lots of what is one of the hard things for you to think about um my initial thought is probably like the way that I show up in my marriage sometimes when I'm feeling frustrated or overwhelmed um and that kind of thing because in you asking me that question I was filtering it through a, another question of what can be the hardest thing for me to take accountability for and I'm sure that 
I'm hoping that this is a shared experience for most people in relationships, especially intimate relationships with other people. Um, we have a tendency to take, you know, our bad days out on the people who are closest to us, which oftentimes become our partners. And that can very much be me where I'm just like, I am so tired. I am so exhausted. Or there's this thing that's making me particularly frustrated. And so I become short tempered with my partner and it is very easy for me to feel like I deserve to be that way because I have had a hard day when mm-hmm. I'm like, no, that is self-indulgent behavior. That is unkind to my partner. And he has been very good, especially through his own therapeutic process of finding the times when I might do that and pointing them out to me in a way that is kind and gentle and is like, hey, I don't think that you notice this. Um, I think he's very good about having positive bias towards me. I think so too. Yeah. But but that does not mean that he is af- afraid by any means to say like, I like you need to take a step back. What's going on with you? And that can be really hard for me. And I do not mean for this to sound the opposite of humble, arrogant, I guess, <laughs> but I'm someone who does not get like frustrated easily or angry easily. I'm very flexible about things. Um, And so sometimes I can then use that as justification of like, I'm never angry. Like, don't I deserve to be angry now? And so it can be really hard for me to walk back that feeling of like, no, 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 no. You don't get to justify your bad behavior that you take out on other people. Like, that's not a real thing. Gosh, that's so interesting because part of me and my, (laughs) Lexi agrees. Um, Part of that, my thoughts listening to you was, what's the difference between explaining and justifying behavior? Because I do think that like, if you're not flexible, well, okay. I just figured it out as I was thinking about it. There's a difference between explaining feelings and explaining behavior. Right. So like, cause my feedback was going to be, I do think that you deserve to be angry if you're not often angry, or even if you are often angry, like you get to be angry, but you don't get to act angry. Oh yeah. Well, I don't get to act like an asshole. And- right. That's what I mean. I usually, yeah. I say a lot to clients, like you can be mad, but you can't be mean. Um, one of my clients oh, yeah. actually told me that I was like, I'm stealing that and saying <laughs> it to everyone all the time. Like you get to be mad, but you don't get to be mean. And so that yeah. just kind of answered that. Well, I think for me in, in my process of self-reflection with that is I need to be able to be aware in the moment that I have a diminished capacity for taking on responsibility when I get home. If I just had a day where I was really responsibility forward about everything that was happening. And so I need to then tell my partner that that way they know like, Ooh, okay. Limited capacity here. Like she can only, you know, come in 30%. I need to make up the difference. Um, and that's actually very helpful. And cause yeah, I do get to be frustrated or I do get to have a bad day, but that's an opportunity for my partner to support me. Not one for me to get to be a jackass, but you know, That was hard for you to do because like even when you were saying that you were kind of rolling your eyes like, oh, like I wish it was a good enough reason for me to behave this way, but I know that it's not. Can you tell that this is something that recently was a discussion between (laughs) me and my husband? (laughs) I do think that you guys, that's, you know, I love watching y'all together. I think that you do a good job of being respectful to each other, but still holding each other accountable. Mm. And you guys, I can always observe the safety that you have in your relationship like even if you are being kind of an asshole both of you know that it's not personal to you or to him if one of you is being an asshole yeah but then but still saying like hey you can't treat me like that 
Yeah, that's mm. really nice. Yeah, which I think that we have a lot of rules around communication. And I do mean rules about like what is okay and what is not. Like using profanity towards each other is never okay. Um, but once one of us talks to the other one in a way that is not appropriate, we are very quick to be like, you don't get to talk to me that way. Yeah. And that's usually, I think, I think. I think when either one of us says that to each other, we're like, Ooh, yeah, I need to step back. Like we might need to disengage for a moment and revisit later because one or both of us is having heightened emotions and it's not being productive anymore. But all right. Same question for you. What's something difficult to be self-reflective on? Yeah. Hmm. I think that something I have been reflective on about a lot lately that has been challenging. Two things come to mind and they're kind of connected. Obviously how I show up in romantic relationships is part of that because I've been getting getting back into the dating world and really trying to not repeat patterns from past relationships. Like the conversation that you and I were having earlier about how do you have that awareness of like, I know I have a tendency to do X, Y, or Z in relationships. And so I want to communicate to a new potential person like, Hey, this is something that feels probably kind of, this is, I'm going to be talking it out as I'm thinking Mm -hmm. it. Like it's interesting because these, in the first stages of dating people, there's a lot of pressure to like be fun. Right. And like, and to not have it be too heavy. And also as a person who is older, like I'm in my, 30s versus in my 20s dating a person I think that it is important to kind of and I'm a therapist right so I like I want to get to the shit I don't want to like just have fun which is silly because I do want to have fun but like if we don't agree on certain values-based kinds of things then I don't want to date you and I want to know that now before I actually start to like you too much because then it gets harder to stick to your values if you like the person but going off on a tangent but um so how to communicate about like, this is the way that I would like to show up in a potential relationship and talking about your behaviors in relationships without it feeling like you're putting pressure on a new dating thing to be a relationship yet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That sounds very complicated. Yeah. It's really hard. And I think that, so a big piece of that is just the vulnerability. So it's coming to my head, like something that I reflect on is my desire to be the cool girl or to be chosen, right? Like I want to be picked and, um, you know, I could talk to my therapist about where that's coming from versus on here. But, um, that's something that I reflect about a lot. And that also is in my friendships. I think about Mm -hmm. that a lot. Like, I guess my thing that I'm reflecting a lot about is, am I over-functioning in relationship dynamics even if no one's requiring that, right? Like, so sometimes I will over-function even at, like with you, for example, like I'll try to manage, like, is everything okay? Or what's going on here? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, you don't need me to do that, but I'm drawn to do that. And mm-hmm. so trying to not do that, like the conversation we were having earlier. Um, I want to give you some feedback about that. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Like, I mean, I think that just pokes at your, t- your codependency yeah, piece. Yeah, yeah. And I don't mean that as a judgment. No, yeah that speaking is another codependent person, right? Hello, we're all humans. And so that, that tends to to come up in different ways, but 
Yeah. Cause I think that's you just wanting to save the people that you love from negative experiences or feelings that feel unpleasant. I think it's more than that though. I think that Mm -hmm. it's also wanting to um, prove my worth and value to a person. Oh yeah. Which is okay. Like, yeah, you know, and I think that's something that I've worked on a lot. It's interesting too, because I work with a lot of clients who struggle with that. And I get it's so easy to give that feedback to other people, right? But then when you turn it inward, it's like, well, how am I doing this in my own life? And I think that this is so this is an interesting kind of thing. We talk, we learn a lot in school about how you're not supposed to get anything, like you're not supposed to get your needs met by your sessions with your clients. But I do think that I in giving feedback to clients and listening to them and being like, Hey, you're saying this, but like, this is what it really sounds like, or, you know, whatever, that I get a lot of my own insights about myself. I'm not sharing that with them and being like, Oh my gosh, me too. This is my experience of that insight, which I think is the inappropriate way to do things. But all that to say, I work with a lot of clients who struggle with the same kind of stuff. And so I do think that something that is a bonus of being a therapist and giving feedback to people a lot about the same kind of things is it's reinforcement for yourself too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that idea of like you have inherent worth and value as a person just by existing and you don't have to prove that you are worthy and valuable to other people and mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think that that's the thing that I um, have been reflecting on a lot recently, which is also challenging to do. Yeah. Well, I think you're really speaking to something important here, especially because we love to talk about vicarious trauma, like that therapist experience. But I think that we get some form of vicarious insight or growth or resiliency. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's maybe a word that actually describes that phenomenon, but I think that is what happens. And I will say sometimes I'll come out of a couples therapy session that I'm facilitating and, and I'll have given feedback and then I'll reflect on it like, am I actually like living into this feedback in my own relationship? Mm-hmm. And so I don't, there's something about being a therapist that can kind of keep you honest in your, yeah. Yeah. in the relationships that you have in your, in your personal life. I was going to say real life, but. Right. Yeah. I wonder also too, how that stuff impacts imposter syndrome or is connected to imposter syndrome, right? Like feeling that idea of, am I actually living into this in my own relationship? that might bring up some feelings of imposter syndrome, but then it goes back to like, it is so much easier to say stuff (laughs) and tell people things than it is to do it. And I really try to make sure that when I'm talking with clients and also when I'm talking to myself, just like, this is easier said than done. Mm -hmm. And there's value in that. And just because it's easier said than done doesn't mean it's said and impossible to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know I say to a lot of my patients, like sitting in on this side of the session, I know that this is easier for me to identify, observe and give feedback on than it is for you to actually take and apply, implement and all that stuff. And, and I, you know, I know the work involved with that. So mm. I think it's important to honor that in the process. Yeah. But I, I do sometimes think in my own self-reflection of, you know, I love to, to say, the process can be more important than the outcome, right? So having a hard conversation with someone, even if the result is something that you were hoping to avoid, like sometimes sharing those feelings and having that vulnerable um, connection or vulnerable output of what you're experiencing can be way more important than, you know, than what happens afterwards. And that can be a hard one to make sure you're living into. Yeah. Hmm. I'm just reflecting. (laughs) So what do you think, how do you think self-reflection can be um, 
like problematic or dangerous even? Ooh. Um, I mean, I think self-reflection for someone who has a trauma background mm-hmm. or who has an anxiety disorder that is persistent can be really hard to go into a place of self-reflection without it becoming a shame spiral mm-hmm. or without it becoming rumination. Um, and I think that's where therapy comes in to help give you parameters of what are the best ways to do those things. Like I do know for myself, I can go into a shame spiral when I'm internally reflecting about things, which is why therapy is so helpful because you have to externally process. Right. And that can be helpful both personally and professionally because sometimes I'm, you know, writing clinical notes and thinking, you know, conceptualizing a patient's case. And then I go speak about it to a colleague and I don't even need feedback from them. They just gave me the space for me to think out loud about it. And I'm able to, you know, to fill in the gaps or, or find where I need to go. And I think that's, what's really important about allowing other people to be part of your self-reflection or just give you space to, to do that, like within community. Yeah. That's one of, so it's so interesting. First, I'm going to, I have to say a couple things before I say the next thing that I'm going to say, but I have a, a rule with my clients that I really try to encourage them not to use the word crazy to describe themselves or oh, yeah. other things. I, I say to them like crazy quote, quote is like being out of touch with reality, having psychosis, having hallucinations, delusions, like all of that kind of stuff. And even then I wouldn't use that word crazy. I would use the clinically appropriate words, but really trying to not let people, um, I mean, they can say whatever they want, but I'll pay it. I'll admit, I'll note like, hey, you're saying crazy, but I think you might mean something else. And a a lot of times it just means emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I wanted to say that. And now I can't remember the next thing that I was going to say from it. Oh, so so people think that they are crazy or a thing that is um, associated with being crazy is the idea of talking to yourself like out loud. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that I think is really helpful about self-reflection is talking to yourself out loud because Things sound different when you say them versus when you think them. And so that's why I was prefacing the whole, like, it's not crazy. And I don't use that word anyway. To talk to yourself, like, I will have a conversation with myself and use my name and be like, hey, Kelly, what's going on here? What are you thinking about? Why are you doing this? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's a way that you can use self-reflection and that externalizing thing Mm -hmm. to um, not... I think if you're saying it out loud, you're much less likely to go into the spiral but in that dangerous way. You look like you want to say something. No, I was just reflecting on like my own experiences with that because I, I do talk out loud a lot when I'm alone or, or something like that um, and talk to myself. I always call myself Weller White whenever I'm like, like Weller White, get it together. Mm-hmm. Um, but recently I was at work, I was like at my primary job and I had a lot going on in a really short amount of time. I was trying to get some things together. Um, before I was walking in to facilitate a training. And so I'm like, okay, what do I have? I have this. And I was printing a bunch of things and my printer got done. And I was like, oh, thank you so much, printer. You did a good job. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, the executive assistant who's off, who's like desk is right outside my office was like laughing at me. She's like, are you thanking your printer? And I'm like, yes, I'm feeling like (laughs) very overwhelmed right now. I'm just trying to express some gratitude (laughs) for getting it together. And because that's important to me, because if I hold all that, that energy in, because sometimes talking helps. Yeah. exert some of that energy yeah yeah that's funny I do the same thing I'll be like um <laughs> when I'm washing dishes or something and 
I'm just never mind. Yes, <laughs> I do the same thing. Um, um, so I guess thinking about some self-reflection that I don't know, next week or the week after will be our 10 year anniversary of like being official social workers in the field, working with some level of autonomously and not as a student or an intern. So what are your kind of thoughts or self-reflection about what that evolution has been for you? My initial, um, gosh, I'm having a flood of thoughts because my initial thought is to, if I could go back and tell Kelly from 10 years ago, like you're fucking killing it in 10 years, I would like to do that. Yeah. And then also then my next one was like, does, how does that sound to people? And is that too like, you know, into yourself or whatever. And then I'm like, that's the patriarchy who's coming in and giving you that voice or, you know, whatever. So that's a part of self-reflection is like, whose voice is that message coming from? But yeah, I would like to go back in time and just, it'd be so fun if we could like see ourselves doing like our hooding ceremony or something. Mm -hmm. And maybe when we put some social media stuff up, we can put pictures from our graduation day with this episode. But um, just, yeah, to tell her that she's killing it. Yeah. Gosh, it's such, it's, I don't want to say a long road or a hard road to like, to getting into the field, but you go through a lot of things, like even just as a graduate student and even in, you know, different internship experiences and then going into the field and being like, I really hope that I know all the things that I think I know. And I really hope that in the moment when I need to use this information that I can, I can like access it from my brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think lots of people enter the field and have all of that imposter syndrome just swirling around in their mind. And, you know, they want to do a good job and they want their peers and their supervisors and their patients to think that they're doing a good job. And we have a lot of responsibility as helpers. And so it's easy to get paralyzed by that, but Yeah, I think that would be lovely to go back and tell, you know, Jen and Kelly in 2011, like, you're actually going to totally do this. Like, it's hard work and you're totally going to do it. And you're going to not only do it, but be good at it. Yes. Like, you really, you think that you're about to go start doing the work that you are meant to be doing. And I promise you that you are right in having that inclination. Yeah, yeah. While you were talking, another answer to the question of like something that you're that I've been reflective about, and this won't surprise you because we've talked about it before, but it ties in with the professional, but it's also true in my personal is like, for me, I have a big thing about feeling stupid or getting, um, not even feeling stupid, but feeling, um, I guess it is stupid. Stupid just feels like such a mean word to say, which is also reflective of like the progress that I've been making about that. But so I would also go and tell Kelly from 10 years ago, like, you're really good at this and you're not supposed to know it all. Oh, yeah. Right. Like you don't have to know everything to be good at this. And that's something that's really hard for me still is like, even with editing the podcast, we've gone back and forth about like, how does the sound quality like sound and all of this stuff. And like, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be good at this. Try to keep that beginner's mind kind of thing. So that's another piece of reflection. I agree. I mean, I always say like, I never really want to be the smartest person in the room because then that means I've probably hit a wall on growth. Um, And by no means do I think I walk around in situations being the smartest person in the room, but I do really want to surround myself with people who challenge me and who know more things or, you know, because that keeps me on my toes. It keeps me reaching. It keeps me growing. And 
I feel like if I could also tell 2011 Jennifer anything, it would be like, you are going to be so surprised and proud of the things that you end up doing. I never sought out to have a private practice. I didn't know that I would be facilitating trainings and really find like my niche in the field, like not just in the patients that I'm working with, but also with the professionals that I'm helping to support through like licensure processes and things like that. So I don't know. I I have grown leaps and bounds in ways that I never even imagined or thought that I wanted to. And I think that's also been really great. How many surprises I have had in store for myself. Yeah, it's funny because so I had a couple of thoughts while you were talking. One is I don't I couldn't see myself doing agency work for like I don't know how some people do agency work forever. Like how private practice is not a goal for everybody just because of like the flexibility and freedom that comes with that. And I understand there's a lot of, um, you know, barriers and, um, you know, health insurance, for example, is one of those things that like, if you have a family, you need health insurance for them. So you get it through an agency work or whatever, but just the idea of like knowing that I could be doing the first job that I had still, and like 10 years seems like such a long time, but it also feels like not very long at all. Yeah. Like the idea of, and maybe it's because we went to grad school so fast and so many, like right after or a year after our undergrad. And a lot of people find becoming therapists or social workers as a second career. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like, man, I've been doing this for 10 years. Like that feels legit. And it also feels like I'm still a baby uh-huh. in the field. And when you were talking about like how you're helping people get their licenses and doing supervision and you're, you know, director of things and all that, it's just like, feels like 10 years isn't enough experience to do that sometimes, <laughs> Yeah, but you're so good at it. And so it's just so interesting. So yeah, when you talk about like the surprises, that just stands out to me. Yeah. I, I tell my patients a lot that one of the best things about growing and really working on yourself are all these amazing instances that happen where you get introduced to these wonderful versions of yourself and how that's like a really exciting part, I think of personal growth. And I don't know, that's what it makes me think about the past 10 years and not just about like myself and, and professionally, but about like our relationship and how we've gotten to grow up as therapists together and supporting each other while, you know, we haven't, worked together since our internship um, but still kind of walking that path together and stuff and um, I also have been very very fortunate to get to work with so many women who are just doing incredible work and things like that and that has also been something that has just been a really big driving force in keeping me happy in this field and keeping me engaged and I don't know just another thing I think to be grateful for. I also think like this might be my last thought about self-reflection before we wrap up, but that self-reflection and insight and putting things into action and self-awareness and all of this is, I think often people think of therapy or just personal work as like these light bulb moments, right? And that like you have this insight and then everything is different after that. And really I want to reinforce to myself and to everybody listening and to, you know, everyone that change is really more incremental than that. And like one day you wake up and have an insight of like, oh shit, for the past six months, I've been doing that thing that I said I wanted to do rather than 
waking up one day and be like, today's the first day of the rest of my life and for oh, the, yeah. forever I'm going to make this change. And so I think it's just important to remember like when you're reflecting on yourself and beating yourself up, because that's another thing. Self-reflection also feels like such a pathway to like personal negativity yeah. but that when you're reflecting with yourself and beating yourself up and getting really nasty to yourself, recognizing that like that you're in it right now. It's not that you're not doing it. If you're thinking about it, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. you know? And so that's all about yeah. that. Yeah. I hope in whatever self-reflection that's happening, that we're all giving ourselves credit <laughs> um, for the work that we're doing, or even that you're being self-reflective because that's a great thing. And, you know, so some, some people I would imagine go their whole lives without thinking about how they think about things and how they react to things and how they engage with people. And man, that's, that makes me feel sad. That makes me feel very sad. Like, cause I, I mean, on one hand, ignorance is bliss, right? But on the other hand, it's like, wow, what are you limiting yourself from if you're not giving yourself the opportunity to know thyself and to explore and to like have a relationship with yourself? It's just so yeah. interesting. Well, and I think what's also interesting is that I think in our culture, we like to talk about or something I hear often Um, and I mean, outside of the work I do with patients, whether it's on television or with other people in my life where they'll be like, you know, I'm really trying to work on me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, okay. What does that mean? (laughs) Like what, like, is there something that's actually happening in application or, um, just what does that look like? And I think it's different for so many different people, obviously, but I I also, I don't know if I could just be super voyeuristic and curious about some of those things. I would want to be asking everybody like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you doing? Who are you talking to? Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause I, I mean, just to bring it full circle goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of like self-reflection in a personal way can be Mm -hmm. this very ambiguous, like, what does it mean kind of thing? And so I like how you were saying, who are you talking to? What are you reading? What are you watching? What kind of information are you consuming? What are you thinking about? Like all of that is the action of self-reflection. Yeah. So cool. Well, I think these dogs have some self-reflection they want to share with us. Yeah. And my printer just turned. Thank you, printer, to tell us that it's time for us to end. <laughs> Thank you, printer. You're doing a great job. <laughs> but thanks for listening, guys. Please find us on Instagram and TikTok and where you find your podcast. We're at, at Best Friend Therapist Pod. And you can email us at bestfriendtherapistpod at gmail.com so we can hear what your reflections and insights with yourself are. Yeah. Please rate, review, subscribe, and go practice some self-reflection. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Woohoo. He's so nice. That little fella. I was walking them the other day, and he, we were passing each other, and that dog is crazy, and he always tries to get out at us. One time that dog opened the door and ran across the street and attacked me and Lexi. Um, Yeah. And he was very apologetic. I was like, I'm sorry for you because my dog probably is about to eat yours. Okay. I think that they're done going back inside.